Good morning. So Jason was, was right that the scripture reading uh, reflects where we are in the series that we've been doing through the year, just looking at uh, a section of Ephesians once a month and trying to really focus on learning wisdom and how to walk with God in wisdom. Um, every section of Ephesians is filled with a lot of practical wisdom with how we can be living in godliness and righteousness and pleasing God. And the section that we're going to be looking at is the last section that we looked at in the scripture reading, verses 19 through 21. And I think these are some statements that are really meant to be very climactic. Um, God has been giving instructions about the need to be set apart from the world, to be light, uh, to abstain from sin and the passions of sin, and instead to live as light and to embrace an identity that draws us into the light. And so in verse 10, we're to be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11, not participating in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead exposing them. Verse 13, we're to be exposing things by the light, making things visible. Verse 15, we're to be careful how you walk, not being unwise, but wise, making the most of our time because the days are evil. Verse 17, what we talked about last month, we're to not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so in these three verses before uh, Paul deals with marriage and marital relationships, really are very climactic in this series of instructions and the principles in those instructions. So we're going to primarily be looking at how wisdom embraces God's instruction to sing and to be subject to each other and submit to each other. So we're going to start in verse 19, and we're just going to spend just a a moment on each verse and just try to draw out uh, practical lessons from each of the instructions here, one by one. So verse 19 uh, says again, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Um, So we're told really that there's two aspects of this instruction. For one, we're told to be speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as we've already been doing this morning. Um, It's important, I think, to qualify that in speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, this isn't something that is exclusively an assembly-related thing, right? And so obviously we we can and even should be singing beyond this assembly, whether it be personally or just at home, singing things to each other. And I think the importance of what this is saying by the end of this point will hopefully see an importance in this that leads us to do that more often. But we're to be singing and speaking to each other, but the second part of it is we're to be making melody with our heart to the Lord. So there's a duality of instruction here. And fundamentally, um, I think it's important to understand that singing is a tool of communication. What we see with worship in the New Testament compared to especially what we read about in the Old Covenant with the Law of Moses and the tabernacle and the priesthood in the Old Testament, is the New Covenant is much more heavily focused on communication and communicating truth to each other and instilling truth more deeply into our hearts so that we can live by truth with much more purpose and resolve. But singing is a tool of communication, and God uses that tool so that truth can connect with our memory, our heart, and our emotions. Now, singing can easily become something that is 
a primarily emotional pursuit. Um, one of the last points we'll look at is the goal of the instruction is not an emotional high. We'll return to that. Um, but God designed singing to connect with our memory and to connect with our heart and, yes, to connect with our emotions, although that is not the primary focus of the instruction. And so we see this in the world. Uh, music in general, so this, this is looking just outside of the scope of anything that we sing spiritually, but just music in general, uh, tends to really aid someone's sense of personal identity. I think you see that especially in, like, even what people wear with certain genres of music. Like, if I say country music, what immediately comes to your mind? Or if I say rap, uh, what comes to your mind, right? Um, if, I say, if I say, like, 80s rock and roll, what comes to your mind, right? So with different genres of music, there tends to be some kind of identity that's very frequently associated with it. It's no different with spiritual songs that we are singing to strengthen and embolden our sense of identity. Um, our values, our desires, our hopes, again, emotions that we may, we may be going through because of circumstance or experience, and even just our experiences in general, oftentimes connect with certain genres or themes or subjects of music. Um, just a couple of examples. When I was a teenager, um, maybe unfortunately I went through that cliche like emotional phase, like I grew my hair really long, I was emotional and angry for no reason and was depressed for no reason at all. So just me describing that phase of my life, right? Teenager, emotional. Uh, what kind of music do you think I listened to at that time, right? I tend to listen to music that resonated with my experiences, with my feelings, with my identity. And again, that's just how God has designed music, to be something that can aid us to work through things like that. But with the sense of identity, think of as well like our national anthem and what the purpose of singing a national anthem is and what that puts into your mind. It unifies people together. It reminds us of significant events in the past that define who we are now or has given us rights or privileges that we are living by and receiving right now. Maybe sacrifices people have made in the past. And music can be a way of instilling those values and that sense of identity and unifying people together to understand and live out that sense of identity, right? And so again, it's, it's no different with spiritual songs. And I wanted to read lyrics for some songs that I think highlight this purpose, how different songs have different subjects and themes that I think we're meant to remember and that the fact that it's set to music, things are expressed that would be difficult just to say in everyday conversation in normal context. Uh, look at verse, uh, not verse, but number 72 in your blue book. Number 72. This is a song that in and out of an assembly, um, when I was living in Alabama, uh, where Harold is, is uh, visiting from, when I was living in Alabama, uh, as you've heard me say maybe hundreds of times now, my work environment was very difficult. I wasn't really getting sleep. And I was having just a, a very, very hard time with how hard my work was balancing things. It was emotionally draining. It was spiritually draining. And verse 4, every time I sang this verse, it would move me and bring me to tears when we sang this in an assembly, when I would hear brethren speaking this to me and committing these things together, uh, committing them together as we sang in an assembly. But even personally, this song would come into my mind oftentimes when I would get home from work. 
Verse 4, be with me, Lord, when loneliness overtakes me, when I must weep amid the fires of pain. And when shall come the hour of my departure for worlds unknown? O Lord, be with me there. And so because of experience, I could heavily identify, especially with the first part of that verse, when loneliness overtakes me, when I must weep amid the fires of pain. That was something that I couldn't just in normal conversation in talking to a brother or sister, you know, loneliness is overtaking me and I'm weeping amidst the fires of pain. <laughs> but singing that instilled it into my memory and, and bonding with the brethren together and singing that in a unified way with one voice and one mind helped me work through those emotions and bring them to God. And again, it's not that the pursuit of singing it was an emotional response, but because of the truth of these statements and how rooted they are, in the truth of who God is and where I was, this was instilled very deeply into my mind. Another style of song would be verse 5, a song that we know very, very well, How Great Thou Art in verse 5. Verse 3 is a verse that has uh, really resonated with me in the past. When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. Again, there's something about those lyrics being put to a melody where it's not just something you're speaking just in a normal tone of voice or in conversation, but singing it through with others and singing it with a melody, there's a way that God intends for that to resonate and connect with our heart, for us to have a deepened commitment to God and awe and adoration of him. Um, We'll talk about more of those principles of application with what this is meant to instill in us more after a couple more songs. Look at 189. This is another song that um, has really resonated with me. This, this, in my opinion, is one of the, the goat songs, one of the greatest of all time. Um, the lyrics of this song and the melody are just so incredible. When I survey the wondrous cross, uh, again, in my opinion, one of the greatest hymns ever written. Uh, look at verse 3 and 4. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Again, these lyrics are just saturated with godliness and and thoughts and commitments and comprehension that draws us to the throne of God, that deepens our resolve to serve God, to please God, to understand who he is. And again, God intends for for music and, and singing in these ways for this communication that we're bringing to each other to to affect us in a way that draws us closer to him and fills us, I think, in a good way, in an appropriate way, fills us with with his word and fills our hearts more with faith. Uh, One one last one, 359. Uh, To my knowledge, the first song in the Bible is the song in Exodus chapter 15. And so, again, how songs can help you remember significant events or great victories of the past. I love the song, Victory in Jesus. 
look at verse 2. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing how he made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, Dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. I then obeyed his blessed command and gained the victory. O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. And so what, is, what are these things meant to accomplish as we resonate with these songs, as we, as we try to use these songs as tools to grow in our faith and encourage each other? The nature and themes of the Psalms and of Ephesians, I think at large within the New Testament, really are a framework for what all of this is meant to accomplish. For one, I want to put into your mind just Psalm 1.1. Uh, The Psalms begin, I think, with a cornerstone that sets a theme for the book. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. And in the Psalms, there are very poetic expressions There is emotional intensity in the expressions. The psalmists are enduing incredible adversities, incredible trials. They struggle with hopelessness in their relationship with God. They struggle with their need for deliverance and needing it quickly from God and wondering when he's going to act on his promises toward them. And their assurance in those things is continuously rooted in the truth. And so the psalmists, everything written in the psalms, is not just the psalmists letting their emotions run wild, but it's always kept carefully within that context set in Psalm 1, which is the man who meditates on the word of God is blessed. And so the songs that we sing should always be rooted in an accurate understanding and expression of truth first. And then as those truths are expressed, then that ought to be what guides our hearts and equips us for righteous living. And in Ephesians, I think this is emphasized just in the context of the book at large and even chapter 5. Singing songs should be emboldening the applications that we looked at already within this chapter. You look at verse 1 and 2. Our singing together should embolden our admiration toward God as our Father. It should bring God's works into clearer view. It should be emboldening our faith and our commitment to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. It should embolden our appreciation for the sacrifice that was made for us to redeem us. It should embolden making decisions to abstain from our our physical and temporary passions, to abstain from sin, put away sin, to have endurance when tempted to move into into the path of sin. It should help us be more confident and bold in living righteously and in a holy way apart from the world around us, like in verse 7 and 8. It should disassociate us from our past lives and encourage us to put on the new man created in righteousness and in truth. It should increase our capacity to comprehend our hope in salvation and our confidence in the deliverance that God assures us of and promises. Our songs should be reminders of truths that keep us continuously connected with each other and with God. And obviously with Ephesians and the New Testament context, obviously psalms need to be used as a framework 
in relation so far as it's kept in the new covenant and the nature of the new covenants and patterns in the New Testament and the church. So again, the goal of all of this is not sound or emotional high, right? Um, Some of you have heard me say this before, but in Minnesota, my dad said something that really helped me uh, a number of years ago. We were visiting a very, very small congregation in Rochester, Minnesota, and it was maybe three or four people, and many of them were very old. They could hardly sing. They definitely could not keep a note. So, I mean, if you cough or get something in your throat and quiet down, just honestly, the singing, the sound is, is not good, right? And after leaving that assembly one day, my dad mentioned that he would rather hear singing from brethren that can't keep a tune but is spoken in genuineness as they are truly striving to live righteously and in, in truth than a nice-sounding choral arrangement of a hymn that is identical to what was being sung poorly at the assembly. And I, just, I think there's so much truth in that. And so the goal is not sound. We're not, we're not just trying to sound perfect. Uh, we're not just trying to reach some emotional high in our singing. The goal, again, is to sing truths that embolden our faith, that equip our hope, and motivate us to love, that motivate us to live holy, sacrificial lives, that every week as we sing together, especially at assemblies, we are, a, we are reminding each other of who we are as God's children in relationship to the world around us. So one, one last note. Our goal is to sing then to be clearly heard by others. Singing is a form of communication, right? And so he says in verse 19, we're speaking to one another. And yes, we are speaking in our heart as we're singing to God. And so it is worship to God. But the goal of our singing is not to just quietly sing to ourselves and just know, well, in my heart I'm worshiping God. That's not taking into account the goal of the whole instruction. We are admonishing each other and encouraging each other in our singing. And so even though, you know, not everybody has a loud singing voice, that's fine. It's not, not saying that, you know, if you can't sing loudly, then you can't participate. That's, that's not it. But it's that our goal should be that we are speaking clearly to be heard by those who are around us. And so that means Brandon in the back, you know, should be trying to sing so that someone in the front can hear and someone in the front should still be singing so that others can hear as well. Because again, our singing is to each other. It's a mutual encouragement and participation in the singing. With our singing together as well in that way, verse 21 I think has a relevant application that we are trying to be unified in our singing as well. Singing together is an act of mutual subjection. So when the song leader is leading, we all need to be trying to follow along with the song leader at their pace. If someone like Jason, who's leading songs, makes a note for an adjustment to make in the song, we need to follow and submit to that because the person up front is leading the song, right? And so our singing needs to be unified. It needs to be spoken as communication, and it needs to be something that involves subjection both to each other and the one who is in front leading with however they may choose to lead a song, whether it be something that I wouldn't do or you wouldn't do, if a leader makes a choice, we need to be in subjection to the choice they make as the leader. Uh, verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Um, the most important thing I want to note about this is that giving thanks is not just a happenstance thing. Um, it's not just a matter of convenience. It really is a discipline that God has called us to really strive to learn how to give thanks 
always for everything. And what this does is it's something that matures our faith and helps us to see things differently and understand how involved God is in our lives and how far his love goes and how diligent he is to keep his promises. Having an attitude of thankfulness, we'll see later, doesn't mean that we don't experience an intensity of grief, that we don't embrace grief even in tragedy, but it does mean that grief is given greater freedom as it's held safe in the hands of our awareness of God in his work and in his keeping his promises. Um, Jesus illuminates the lengths that thankfulness can really go. Just on on that note, um, that thankfulness doesn't mean that we aren't honest about tragedy or that we somehow, you know, are never experiencing grief or sorrow with loss. I would argue that Jesus was the most thankful person who ever lived, but he also was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so we'll be looking at that tension between those two things in in just a moment with a psalm. But Jesus illuminates the lengths that thankfulness can go. Jesus shows us that God is giving us everything around us, that God gave us even his own son so that he could redeem us. We draw breath because God gives it to us. We have houses and apartments and we have cars and transportation. We have income. We have health. We have abilities. All of these things, Jesus reveals how many things we can be thankful for. Jesus shows how overwhelming the grace of God is so that the discipline of thankfulness should be something that in many ways should be very easy to pursue. So I think we need to think, though, how can we mature more practically in pursuing thankfulness as a discipline. And I guess to expound on that just a little bit more, you know, we may thank God for routine things, right? Like waking up in the morning, uh, eating food, giving thanks before food. And so giving thanks can become just a routine thing of habit where there's these moments of thankfulness, but then outside of those moments, there's not a practice or a discipline of it. And so as we've been talking about, I think the first thing is giving thanks for everything that God gives and allows. Notice in verse 19, or verse 20 again, always giving thanks for all things. There's a lot of freedom in in that. Uh, For all things, I think, would include things that we have the freedom to enjoy. I think you even think with food. In the Old Testament, God demonstrated that if he wanted to, he can regulate what we're allowed to eat and what we're not allowed to eat. He can regulate where we should go and where we should not go. He can micromanage as much as he wills. He is God. And yet in the new covenant, we are given just an incredible amount of freedom. And it's so much freedom that Paul even had to warn the Galatians, you've been called to freedom, only do not use it as an opportunity of the flesh, but instead rather in love, serve one another. I think the more that we realize how much God is giving us, and what he's allowing us to be able to participate in or enjoy, the more it motivates serving, by, serving God through faith, sacrificing for God through faith, the more we realize the grace that he's giving us beyond what we anticipate or can expect. And so we need to give God thanks for everything he gives and allows. And I think, just to think about it maybe a little more practically, if you're watching a movie that you in innocence can watch or playing a board game or something. Just the fact that God gives you the freedom to even enjoy that with others or do that with others, 
that's even something you can give God thanks for. It, just, it doesn't just need to be for specific religious activities. It doesn't just need to be in a moment where you speak it out loud and have to say amen with others after the prayer. This could be something that you're doing in your heart as you're going through the day and just continuously trying to recognize what you can be thanking for as you're going through your day, participating in things at work or at home with others. Here's something we see with Paul continuously as, as a habit in his, his letters. Paul would continuously give thanks for people. This is where he would emphasize the most, uh, the most focus in his prayers. Uh, look back at Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. If you were in all of the epistles to put together every one of those statements, I've wondered in the past how Paul had the time to do anything else. He would say to multiple congregations, I've always been thanking God for you, I'm always praying for you. And I don't believe he's exaggerating or being dishonest as he's writing those things. It's just that Paul truly was that diligent in giving thanks for specific people and thanking God even for specific things that were going on with those people. So notice back in verse 16, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15, he's mindful of the faith that exists among them and their love for all the saints. And so he has specific things that he's thanking God for with those people. And I would argue that having that attitude towards the brethren leads to investing even more of your heart into your relationships with the brethren. It equips a person to have more mercy, more patience, and again, to be willing to be more devotedly sacrificial in relationships. But where I want to spend a moment is beyond things that can change, people in our lives may change. Obviously, what God gives and allows can change dramatically and be taken away from us. And maybe sometimes there's so much loss and pain around us where it's pretty hard to see things to be thankful for in our immediate circumstance. Turn to Psalm 44. We need to be, I think, ultimately in maturing in our gratitude, learning to give thanks continuously for what is constant with who God is, and unique in who God is. Look at Psalm 44, and we're not going to read 1 through 16. We're going to read uh, a section there in verses 4 through 8. I'm sorry, 9 through 16, and then we're going to go back and read 1 through 8. So 9 through 16 is the situation that the psalmist is in, and I want you to notice particularly how honest the psalmist is about his situation and how he's actually putting responsibility on God for the nature of the situation. Psalm 44, verse 9. Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. 
You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. Something I love about the Psalms is the freedom that I mentioned earlier that they have to express their grief in very gritty, very visceral terms, very honest and open terms. And notice in verse 9, he's saying, God, you've done this. And again, I think he's, he's just being honest. This is something that I believe he's accurately saying, God has truly done this. But I think that helps us appreciate verses 1 through 8. 1 through 8 is the attitude of thankfulness that equips the psalmist to have this kind of honesty in embracing his circumstance. O God, this is verse 1, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples, then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm in the light of your presence, for you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. So is the psalmist being bipolar and unpredictable here? You know, he just got done saying, God, you've done such incredible things that we've heard of. You've been so faithful in your works in the past. You brought your people into the land that you promised them. You're our king. You're able to give us victory. We've boasted in you. We're going to give thanks to you. And then verse 9. But you've rejected us and brought us to dishonor. While the psalmist sees his situation. And while he's being very honest about his situation and how horrendous and grievous it is, the faith of the psalm is that he is not dictating who God is by his situation. He is dictating who God is by his word and his works of the past. Notice in verse 1, his faith is just like ours. This psalmist doesn't have faith because he's seen a miracle. He says, we've heard it. We've been told about the work you did. And think about in verse 2, the wandering through the wilderness, times when it looked like God was not going to fulfill his promises or things were so bad and the nation wasn't getting what they wanted and they complained because of adversity. And he's saying, no, you fulfilled all of your promises. And verse 3, it wasn't their sword. It wasn't because they were strong themselves. It's because they trusted you and you led them to the fulfillment of what you had promised. So verse 4, he makes a commitment. You are my king, O God. Think about this with Jesus. How the Psalms have so much suffering. And Jesus quoting Psalm 22 when he's suffering on the cross. And I think Jesus is solidifying, sealing and fulfilling the faith written in a psalm like this. Where Jesus looked abandoned to his enemies. It looked like it was hopeless. And yet Jesus understood that God's character and his commitment to his promises was not based on the difficulties of the situation. Look at Romans chapter 8 
And we'll make a connection here that I think is very, very helpful again in showing that the psalmist was communicating things that are just so incredibly helpful in our attitude toward God. So the psalmist was not dictating his gratitude by his situation. He couldn't. He said, well, give thanks to you forever, but obviously that's not because of his situation. It's because of who God is. Romans chapter 8, verse 36, Paul quotes Psalm 44. Verse 36 is a quotation from Psalm 44, verse 22. And I think what Paul is doing is drawing out the fulfilled purpose and application of what's being conveyed in that psalm. Look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, Psalm 44, verse 22, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus didn't just show how, how far thankfulness can go. He showed how constant our thankfulness can be, right? And so what Paul is bringing out in Romans 8 Just like the psalmist knew things from the past that dictated his faith, not the present, what's being drawn out here is Jesus dying in the past holds more truth that is more constant than whatever our circumstance or situation can possibly convey. And to think more practically, I think we can easily think, I'm having a hard time, my situation's not changing, God must be very far from me right now. I'm very depressed, I'm very sad, things just seem to be getting worse and worse and worse and not getting better, and so God must have abandoned me. Maybe he doesn't love me anymore. That is not the spirit that is in Psalm 44 in Romans chapter 8. It's truth that stabilizes our faith, not our circumstances. And Jesus demonstrates that our thankfulness is most stable when we are pursuing a view of what is unseen in our gratitude rather than just only thanking God for the things that are happening to us every day. Finally, be subject to one another. Uh, Back in Ephesians 5, we're told to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And I think it's important to note the pursuit of mutual subjection is really one of the most fundamental instructions or calls of the cross. I remember when Devin was was here before he moved to Atlanta, he was thinking a lot about fundamental lessons that come specifically from the cross. And this is one of the things that he would talk to me a lot about. That Jesus subjecting himself to the riotous crowd, being like a lamb who is silent, being led to the slaughter, allowing the unjust accusations to be hurled at him. Jesus was demonstrating principles of subjection in the most fundamental way that are the basis of our salvation. And so this is one of the most fundamental instructions that we need to be in mutual subjection to one another in the fear of Christ. Look back at Leviticus 19. I think understanding what's meant by the fear of Christ, there's some passages in Leviticus that are helpful. Um, Start with Leviticus 19 verse 14. Leviticus 19, verse 14. Notice a similarity in language and phrase here. 
You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Look down at verse 32 through 34. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so with these two instructions, God is trying to convey to the people There are things that you need to do relationally that you may not want to do. There are things that require an extra generosity that requires a selflessness or a sacrifice that you just don't want to do. And you may be tempted to be stubborn or not show that kind of honor to the aged or treat the alien as God instructs. You may be tempted to do things to people behind their back in verse 14, to those who are deaf or putting stumbling blocks to the blind. But in the fear of God, God was calling them to recognize that because of who he is, there is greater honor that is due by his instruction. Look in 25, chapter 25, verses 14 through 17. Here he's giving instructions about a holiday in the Jewish nation called the year of Jubilee that would really dictate their economy. They would have to decrease prices of goods depending on how far they were from the year of Jubilee or how, how long it would be until the day would come. It says, If you make a sale moreover to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price, and in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord, your God. And so again, the emphasis is, you are required to do something because of who God is and because of what he's done and respecting that God is the one in control, that God is the one who gets to judge these things and allowing him into these positions of life that would very easily be want to be kept from him, right? And so God is calling people to do things relationally that depend on their respect for him and who he is. So what does this mean for us practically? Um, Obviously that Leviticus, we're establishing a principle that because of who Jesus is, recognizing that he is Lord, recognizing what he's done for us, that we're to give him the authority to dictate what were we to be doing in our relationships together? How are we to see one another? First, We need to be pursuing exposure with one another. Um, I just think it's the constant spirit at work in the world that Satan just tries so hard to busy us so much that it just progressively chokes our relationships and opportunity for relationship. You know, so much of the New Testament instructs focusing on relationships with people and with brethren. And just the reality is that requires some effort, right? And so it's very concerning when instead of somebody drawing closer and closer to the brethren, they're drifting farther and farther away. And so what we're talking about fundamentally is God is calling us to pursue exposure with each other. We have to be prioritizing our relationships to be able to do things like this. And again, in the fear of Christ, this is fundamentally what the cross teaches us, that 
we have to prioritize uh, the relationships that we have to protect them and build them. I think we need to be careful too with insistence or what we choose to disagree with. Being subject to each other means really listening carefully to what somebody is saying. Um, There can be such an insistence in conversation that one person is dominating so roughly that there's really no room for mutual subjection or I want to listen to what you're saying and I want to consider it and really talk this through or reason it through. And sometimes there are things that we can strongly disagree with that are ultimately really just a matter of opinion completely. And so I think we just, in subjecting ourselves to one another, we have to be very careful with being overly opinionated or aggressive and asserting things that with subjection may not need to be insisted on so strongly and may not need to be belligerently disagreed with. That's not to say that, as we talked about this morning in the Daniel class, that there are not lines to draw, that there's not things to boldly stand for and disagree with. It's not to say that we shouldn't insist on things that God insists on, but it does mean that we need to be meek and we really need to be careful and willing to reflect as well when we're aware that we've overstepped uh, the attitude that we should have. And this is something that, outside of the context of the gospel, just really won't make sense. But I think it really, in its most mature application, it means being silently stepped on. You know, imagine how many times in Jesus' ministry, not just the cross, how many times in Jesus' ministry was he being silently stepped on? When people weren't appreciating, hey, Jesus is really tired right now. Or, hey, Jesus is kind of annoyed with all of the unfaithfulness and testing questions that he's getting. Jesus was being constantly, quietly stepped on, and that's just simply the nature of God. God is constantly stepped on, and he just receives it as quietly as possible. Jesus was wronged. And you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we've talked about this recently, Paul brings up to the Corinthian church when they're taking each other to court, instead of being in subjection to each other, he ultimately says, why not rather be wronged? It's even already a loss that you're wronging each other in the first place. Why not rather be wronged? It means being overlooked. It means being treated unfairly by brethren. I think there's an irony that sometimes being treated unfairly by people of the world, greater grace can be extended because it's like, well, you know, it's somebody who's not a Christian, expectations are lower, but man, being treated unfairly by a brother or a sister, well, now expectations are really high, right? But I think especially even by brethren, to be treated unfairly really unifies us with a very unique characteristic of Jesus, right? This means not demanding that people respect me the way I deem I should be respected. It means relationships become more and more about how can I serve the needs of this other person, understand those needs, and meet those needs. And ultimately, people are not obligated to my will. I think with this command, it can be easy to think, you know what? It really would be nice if people would be more in subjection to me. (laughs) But that's ultimately, obviously, not what this is instructing. This isn't trying to get everybody else to better understand their obligation to me. This is meant to be a plank in our own eye application. That this is ultimately me first. I am trying to make sure that in any relationship... This isn't obligating people to me. It is me obligating myself to others. 
Just as Paul would say in Romans chapter 1 that he was indebted to the Jews, to the Greeks, and Jesus himself fulfilling the law, paying the, the temple tax, suffering the cross, the humiliation, being spit, uh, being spit on in his face, being blindfolded, having his clothes changed by people as he was going through the process of his uh, crucifixion. Um, Jesus did not see others in a dominating view. Jesus gave people the freedom that God had called him to give him so that he could emphasize the gospel not just in words, but in a submissive and meek character. Um, so that's, that's where we'll end the lesson again. I, for the lesson this morning, something I'd like to do is we'll reread uh, verses 19 through 21. And after that, if anyone has anything that needs to be brought forward before the church, we set aside some time after the sermon. Um, if anybody has any spiritual needs that we can help you with. Ephesians 5, 19 through 21, and the lesson will be yours. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's stand and sing.